brought to you by Sumata International. Hi, I'm Larry Payne, and uh, I'm here today with Dr. Art Brownstein, uh, who, among other things, is a senior instructor in our yoga therapy arts program at Loyola Marymount University. Um, Art, how did you first get introduced to Dr. Uh, Pratab, who was your first yoga teacher here in America? Um, I was in Philadelphia. I'm originally from Southern California, but I was attending medical school at Jefferson Medical College. And I injured myself playing basketball and went to an orthopedic surgeon who evaluated my spine and said that um, if I don't learn to develop some flexibility in my body, I was going to end up on an operating table. And he strongly recommended a yoga class, which was taught through my medical school extracurricular activities and that's how I met Dr. Pratap and I got hooked ever since. That was in 1977. Wow. Art, how did you find time when you were in medical school? With all the pressure and the academic training and everything and staying up all these hours to go find a, and be with a yoga teacher? Well. I think yoga literally saved my life because I was in a very difficult academic environment. Everybody knows how hard it is in medical school and you're studying, studying, and there's a lot of stress, especially the first two years, which are mostly the basic sciences. The second two years, it's more clinical, and then you spend long hours in the wards and seeing patients. And yoga saved me because it kept me centered, it kept me focused, it kept me relaxed, it helped me deal with the stress. I was able to make better decisions. And I, um, I, there was a time when I wanted to run away from medical school wow. and quit and go to, straight to India and be a full-time yogi and an Ayurvedic doctor. And Dr. Pratap talked me out of it. He said, no, we need you you got to get your medical degree to help further the aims of yoga and we kind of battled there. I really at one point was really frustrated with Western medicine. I thought it was not preventive oriented. I thought it was too much uh, crises, uh, short-term thinking and management and using drugs and surgery and I really felt the uh, that yoga was a very empowering discipline that taught people how to take better care of not just their bodies but to understand how their minds and their bodies were connected. And um, so yoga, I just embraced it. And during internship, it was very difficult because you're on these 36-hour straight shifts and wow. you're totally sleep-deprived. And somehow I was able to sneak away from time to time. With, of course, I had a pager with me. And I was always on call and having to run to the emergency room to attend to people with heart attacks. And um, so I um, would sneak away and do some breathing, do some meditation, and of course do as many asanas as I could. And what I learned about the value of the integrated approach to yoga, which include asanas, was that when you were tense, and this is something, being a man was very a very difficult lesson for me to learn that that tension translated into physical tension in your muscles and so you could feel it you could feel yourself stiffening up you could feel your muscles in your chest that were 
restricting your breathing, which were affecting your was affecting wow, your heart. that's huge. Yeah, so it, the whole thing kind of went together, and I was so so lucky. I mean, looking back, I didn't realize it. You know, you you're kind of led down these paths in life, and you you don't understand the bigger picture and the significance until you look back many years later. And I I just feel so fortunate that. My very first year in medical school, I got introduced to yoga, and my whole life's mission has been to integrate those two disciplines and not to dismiss my medical training and my medical background, but to integrate what I've learned from yoga into medicine. Really great. Now let me ask you, you did a stint in the Air Force. That's right. And I imagine the Air Force wasn't real open about yoga. You did some papers and everything? Not at first they weren't, but um, um, I had a military scholarship. The Air Force paid my way through medical school and I was able to defer that repayment and go to India, travel to India as well through Tulane University. But I um, entered the Air Force uh, my family was not really big on military um, uh, culture and uh, I ended up being able to apply what I learned from yoga to help benefit the Air Force and pilots by teaching them how to relax because there was a huge problem uh, surfacing in the Air Force that they were losing about 60 million dollars a year in disability paying out to pilots who had to retire prematurely due to cardiovascular disease, high blood wow. pressure, wow. heart disease. And so the Air Force instituted this uh, uh, worldwide program called the CARE program, C-A-R-E, Coronary Artery Risk Evaluation. And back then, you know, there was a lot of smoking going on in the aviation industry. And even on commercial aircraft, there was always smoking sections this was in the early 80s, you know, even on uh, domestic flights. So, um, they, I was at my airbase in the Philippines, Clark Air Base, which was the a regional medical center that took care of all military personnel and, and flying personnel in the Pacific Theater, which included Hawaii and Korea and Japan and um, all of the Pacific. I was, I was in, they put me in charge of this huge. because of my training in preventive medicine. I was board certified in preventive medicine, which is another thing that has really served me well. Um, just as a, just interjection, how many people would you say, just to take a wild guess, that you'd be responsible for? Well, thousands. Wow. Thousands. You know, I mean, it was, it was, and, um, but the, the care program consisted of smoking cessation, dietary intervention, exercise, and stress management. And that's where yoga came in. And so all of my training, um, I was able to first demonstrate to pilots, and, and this is something that I think is important for any physician or any, any scientist that's trying to introduce yoga to a maybe a, uh, a rigid, resistant population because when uh, back then in the, in the Cold War, um, you know, this in in the West there were very few uh, men that came to yoga classes, which is reversed from India. So, um, in the Air Force mentality at that time, 
you know, the only people that were doing yoga were, you know, women and communists, essentially. And I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to align myself with, you know, communists either. <laughs> either. And, and so I had to break down that mythology. And I used a little technology called biofeedback. And I had a very old biofeedback machine. And people would come in with uh, pilots, you know, that they're about ready to be thrown out of the Air Force because their blood pressure was too high. You're not allowed to take any medication as a pilot to fly, Whoa. or you're permanently grounded. Wow. And for those that are really valuable, you have to go through this extensive wavering process. But basically, the physical exam of the pilot is the most closely scrutinized physical exam of any profession in the world. I mean, when you think about the responsibilities. Yeah. And um, so they have a very stringent requirement to fulfill physically as well as psychologically and mentally. And um, so the Air Force was very much open to saving money, number one, and number two, by preserving careers and to get people's blood pressure down without medication. And the pilots, you know, they would, the pilots were the most incredible group of people to work with. I mean, they were like natural yogis. That oh, did. Didn't you do a, a paper? That's right. So I wrote a paper based on the four years of work. What was the was, name of the it was, it was actually a case report. Let me see. The paper was something like, uh, it, was, it was a case report. It was representative of all the work I'd been done. It was, treat, it was published in July 1989 uh, in Aviation, Space, and Environmental Medicine, which was the official journal of the Aerospace Medical Society. And um, because when I became a flight surgeon, I had to be trained in aerospace medicine, you know, by the Air Force. What so, type of surgery would you do? Well, it's the, the surgery part is kind of a misnomer. I mean, you had to do whatever was necessary in a, you know, combat situation you mean exactly? in the air. But, it, I mean, rescue, I ended up doing, uh, I was assigned to different squadrons in addition to my hospital work. I was worked with a special operations squadron that... Uh, flew at night with night vision goggles behind, below uh, mountain tops to evade um, uh, enemy radar. I mean, this was kind of before all the stealth technologies yeah. replaced a lot of that. And worked with Navy SEALs and Delta, Army, Davy, you know, Delta Force. It was joint operational things. How many yoga teachers have done that? Yeah, <laughs> no, it was, you know, and, uh, and then also, helicopter rescue and I ended up getting an air medal from President Reagan for being the flight surgeon that flew President Marcos and out of Manila. I think, did oh, you, did new, you know that? A, no, that's a new one to oh, me. Yeah. yeah, so I have, I have an air medal and, and um, to this day I still receive Republican campaign literature because <laughs> they fought, they did such a great job of brainwashing me that, uh, that I'm always going to vote Republican. But it did kind of move me a little bit that way, you know, from, and uh, so I try to be apolitical and vote for candidates on the basis of their merits. Absolutely. And, and not be Let's a, talk about a whole other subject yes. that's also fascinating is that you did a big stint in India, and you were—you used your medical abilities over there as well, didn't you? Yes. Well, I was very fortunate when I was applying for a residency program after medical school. I uh, had chosen preventive medicine, and the the dean of the students at medical school begged me not to do and go into preventive medicine. He said, "You'll there's no money in it. You'll never put food on the table for your family." 
you won't be able to support yourself. And I said, well, I'm sorry. I believe in it. I have to do it. Wow. So I interviewed at Harvard, and Harvard accepted me, but they wouldn't let me go to India. And I was hell-bent on yoga at this time because I had had you know, four years under my belt with Dr. Pratap, and I was sold on yoga personally and professionally as a doctor. I wanted to share it with my patients. And um, Harvard said, well, we'll send you to uh, Colombia, South America, or Zaire, Africa, but we can't send you to India. And I said, why not? And they said, well, we don't have contacts there. And this was during the Cold War. This was like in the late 70s or the 80s. And so I interviewed at Tulane University, and I met this wonderful man there named Dr. Uh, Dean Banta. He was the dean of the entire School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. And he said, listen, I cannot promise you India, but I promise I'll try. And he got me to India through a professional studies in India graduate program through the University of California, Berkeley. He said, look, if you get accepted by them, I think I can convince the committee members. Because at that time, the committee members at Tulane in New Orleans, which is a very conservative institution, they said, well, what the heck does yoga have to do with medicine? You know, we can't let Brownstein go over there to India unsupervised. You know, he'll end up in some opium den smoking hashish or something, and it's a boondoggle. And so he argued, Dr. Banta believed in me. He didn't know much about yoga, but he knew, he saw the fire and passion in my eyes, and he um, believed in me, and I thank God for Dr. Banta. And he was able to prevail. He goes, look it, just make sure you come back with a published paper. You, know, you need to publish a paper to vindicate you know, this yourself and from this. Did he give you any clues about what the paper topic should be? No, he just said it had to be published in a scientifically peer-reviewed journal, you know, which is, which is an academic standard. And, and so that was the basis for that article that I wrote in the Air Force that came six years later and after 13 journal submissions and three revisions that took an hour, uh, um, three revisions that took a year and a half on the final revisions before oh it finally was God. accepted. And, that, and it was only a four-page article, and I thought to myself, wow, six years to get four pages. I could do a book in that time. And the irony of it is that I've gotten two published books out since, and each one of them took five years to write. What are the two books? Just so people the know. first book is called Healing Back Pain Naturally. It's a, a yoga-based. And I read that one. That's fantastic. It's a yoga-based approach and uh, to um, you know back problems that I had you know suffered personally for many many years, and which yoga has been invaluable for me. And the second was called Extraordinary Healing: The Amazing Power of Your Body's Secret Healing System, which is based on the premise that in addition to your immune system, which is a system that helps your body defend itself against disease, there is a yet untapped or an un, uh, really researched uh, system in the body known as the healing system, that your body is a healing machine. It knows how to heal itself. Andrew Wiles written about it. Many people have written about it. But this was the first book that was completely devoted to that subject. And it was inspired by Norman Cousins, who I met at UCLA, and he pretty much um, commanded me to write this book to gain more attention so that more funding and research can be done. Into now, just this. for the people who are listening, could you please one more time 
names of your two books? Uh, Healing Back Pain Naturally mm -hmm. and Extraordinary Healing. Okay. Brother Art, um, tell me about really your, your experience going to India and being there and who you were with and all that. Okay, well, I was, I was hell-bent on going. I think I mentioned that, you know, that Harvard wouldn't let me go, and I turned down Harvard. I still have the acceptance letters, and they said, you've been accepted. Frame it. <laughs> you've been accepted at Harvard, and we haven't heard back from you, and nobody turns down an acceptance to Harvard. But crazy me, I was, like I said, hell-bent on yoga, and Dr. Banta um, let me go there. And uh, when I showed up in India, uh, a, there's a funny story. Dr. Pratap, he'd had many students before me because he'd come over with uh, Swami Rama uh, in 1970. Swami Rama actually signed his green card. You know? Wow. And he, uh, so he had a lot of, he had an instant following and he had some very dedicated students for seven years before I came along. Why don't we hold here just because of that plane? Okay. What are you picking we can, it up? We can start right back up again? Yeah. You, I'll start right at the beginning of what you were talking about. With Patab? Yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, there's a funny story when I was getting ready to go to India with Dr. Patab. He would, we had a summer retreat uh, uh, area in the rural Pennsylvania and near a little town, not too far from Swami Rama's place near Homesdale. And uh, it was a little town called Unityville. How's that? Unityville. <laughs> and uh, so uh, we'd had very nice vegetarian food and cooking and there was a garden and we ate organically and did practices and did chanting and Gayatri mantras and stuff every summer. It was wonderful. So they, Dr. Pratap had studied and trained at Kevaladam Yoga Institute. It was world-renowned, world founded in 1924 for the purposes of researching the, from a Western medical scientific point of view, what was really valid in yoga and this what was... This is all in India. Yeah, this was in India. So he had been the deputy director of research there for 20 years before coming to America. And um, so he had this kind of scientific orientation, and, but he would, his students, his more advanced students would go every summer for a six-week yoga teacher training program at Kevaladam and it's near to Pune, not too far from Iyengar, BKS Iyengar's place in, in a town called Lonavla. And um, so here I was, Brownstein, was going to go there for a full year and he was a little bit nervous because he didn't want to uh, meet a, he, a he, Dr. Pratap, uh, you know, that it was going to give him a, a, you know, uh, you know, from a, um, you digestive point him, of view yeah. where, yeah, he didn't want, and, and he'd never had any of his students go for that length of time. And he told me, he said... Especially a doctor. Oh, yeah. He, he told me personally, he said, you're going to last 15 days, you're going to get diarrhea, and you're going to come running home. And I looked at him, I said, no, I'm not. And uh, he said, well, let's just see. So the first day we had lunch together, uh, he said... He put a green chili pepper on my plate. This is Pratap? Yeah, Pratap. He said, okay, eat this. So I ate the chili pepper. The next day, there were two chili peppers on the plate. He said, okay, eat that. I did. Third day, three chili peppers. Fourth day, four chili peppers. Five, the fifth day, five chili peppers. I ate them. 
before and he, he left. And he looked at me and he said, maybe now you are ready for India. <laughs> and, yeah. So, but he didn't know. See, East Coast people don't, can't handle spicy food. I was from Southern California. I was raised on Mexican food. Yeah. You know, I can handle it. I thought. But uh, anyway. So what did happen when you so, got there? So when I got there, the head of the Kevaladam Institute was this venerable octogenarian named Swami Digambarji. And he was quite the authority on the Vedas and the Upanishads. And he was revered by many people. He had disciples for 50 years. And he was a little guy, but you didn't mess around with him. And he commanded respect just from his authority. And he was Swami Kulayananda's oldest disciple, and he was a wonderful, wonderful man. He was very quiet, but you didn't want to get him upset. Or was he, he was, a householder? He was not. He was celibate. He was a Brahma, you know, brahmacharya. Very devoted, um, you know, incredible. People would come from all over to visit him Spiritual. and see him. And every year he'd take off into the Himalayas, Himalayas and do his uh, retreats. But so Dr. Pratap said, he said, listen, when you get to India, I want you to just, just serve Swami Digambarji. And I said, well, what do you mean, serve? You know, that's a foreign term to many Westerners. He said, well, water his plants. He has a little kuti where he does his pujas and does his, um, um, you know, meditation and teaching. And, um, and if he wants a cup of tea, or just serve him and help, you know, clean the dishes. And I, I went there with that full expectation of just kind of being in the background and learning what I could. And so I go there and I attend the first puja and, um, and Swami Digambarji, after he, he pulls up a chair and just sits right in front of me. And he looks at me and he says, welcome to India, you're my new doctor. <laughs> so that began an eight-year relationship. No pressure. <laughs> yeah, that began, and so I was his doctor, and I was also his student. Yeah. And it was like Dr. Patapa just handed me off, and he was the most It was the most difficult, but most amazing relationship. And uh, he was just an incredible human being, and an incredible teacher. Fantastic. Now, Art, you also did something unique. You moved to my favorite island, Kauai. Yes. And uh, that had to be something on that small island, uh, being the doctor and everywhere you go, people in the grocery store and everybody's asking about the yes. art and all that stuff. You know? Yes. Well, after my time in India, which was one year, compliments of you know, Tulane University and the University of California, Berkeley, um, I was in there. I was enrolled in the diploma in yoga education course. So I took a one year. It was a one year postgraduate course through Kevalidam uh, GS College of Yoga and Cultural Synthesis, mm -hmm. and that was recognized by the government of India, who granted this uh, postgraduate degree diploma in yoga education. So, and I was. I had a beard and long hair. You know, for I kind of looked. I've like, got those pictures. Yeah, I kind of looked like Charles Manson. You know, it was pretty scary. <laughs> but um, after that time, it was time to serve in the Air Force. So I had to trim everything off and and uh, look very Ivy League and and uh, military ready. So off came everything, and I served in the Air Force. Yeah, and we, we so every but every time I would I would get a thirty day leave, and ah. I'd go straight back to India. And when I left the Air Force, I just went straight back to India for seven months, and then six months. And I've, you know, India is a place that you just 
one, you either love it or hate it. And I, after my first year there, I didn't want to leave. They had to drag me away kicking and screaming. And um, so when I was leaving the Philippines, though, I knew I had to have some place in the West. And I'd grown up in Santa Monica, California. And my dad was a UCLA doctor. And he had just passed away. And my mom had passed away. And my sisters sold our home. So I was essentially homeless, you know, except that I had bought, bought um, three and a half acres of land in Kauai as I was, you know, I wanted to go to kind of a quiet place and do more yoga and, and not live such a high, you know, life in the fast lane existence because the Air Force was pretty demanding. I was flying all over the Far East and doing rescue missions and, you know, um, flying Ferdinand Marcos out and, and doing embassy support in Bangkok and Korea and Hong Kong and it was it was a very fun and exciting time but, but it was I wanted a more yogic kind of simpler lifestyle and I wanted to write some and so I was able to get um, land in Kauai and I had visited Kauai in 1980 and you know being a surfer in Southern California I had always gravita gravitated toward you know, the Hawaiian lifestyle, the aloha, um, and uh, the culture, the music, Hawaiian music, and hula, and all those things, you know, for a Westerner, and having uh, Kauai being still part of the United States, but closer to India, my beloved India, it was kind of a logical move. And from my, art, uh, from my own experience of going to Kauai quite a bit, uh, there aren't that many places to teach there, but you found, and also your wife Newton. Yes, you both found a place to teach there for many years, right? Yes, there was a um, Princeville uh, Health Club and Spa that was attached to this famous golf course, the Prince Course, and which was in the, uh, this resort community, uh, Princeville, on the North Shore of Kauai, and it was pretty quiet and beautiful, and people used to come there for their retreats and meditation. And um, Newton was uh, a student of uh, Dr. Sri Krishna, at, who was the medical director of the Bombay branch of Kevaladam for 25 years. And he was a medical doctor with a PhD in Pranayama. And he was very, very advanced. And she was one of his students. So when I met her through him, I was able to, we married, and she came to Kauai with me and uh, ended up being the starting the yoga program there because there was a you know there was a lot of visitors from all over the world and they wanted to do yoga and i ended up teaching three days a week in the morning 7:15, for about a 10-year period and i would go from there to my office which was five minutes away and do my medical thing for uh, that went on for about 10 years and newton continued for about 18 years there fantastic our, one more uh, topic I would like to cover, and that is, um, in a nutshell, your experience with Dr. Dean Ornish. In a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> I could talk about Dr. Ornish for the next two weeks. I understand. And it still wouldn't be a big enough nutshell. But um, he, um, we met when, when uh, I left the Air Force, and I was leaving the Air Force, I was a huge fan of Dr. Herbert Benson, who was a cardiologist and the first person in the world yeah. to prove that meditation lowered blood pressure. He proved it. It was published in Scientific uh, American, 
and he discovered the relaxation response was a very which was a very definitive set of scientific physiologically measurable parameters that was countered the flight or fight response which was what stress is and so he just did it so simply and eloquently and I wanted to spend time with him and do a fellowship with him for because here was a legitimate cardiologist who embraced all the principles of yoga in at Harvard so once again I packed my bags to go to Boston and interview with him and it was a two-day interview and I had memorized every article he'd ever written for 10 years before. Oh, yeah. Just in the course of following his career, I just loved what he'd been able to accomplish. And he must have appreciated that. <laughs> he not only appreciated it, but he put his arm around me as we walked down the hall and he wanted to groom me to you know, be his understudy, I imagine. And I was all on board with that too, and it looked great. Everything looked like I was going to be going to Harvard. And then I met this lady named Joan Borisenko, and Joan interviewed me in her office. It was part of it was a two-day interviewing process, and I saw her little yoga mat in the corner. And I later found out she was a student of Swami Muktananda. And Joan said, "Look, you don't want to come here." I said, "Joan, I want to come here." She said, "No, no, Dr. Benson, he's wonderful." And he's made his contribution uh, to medical science, but uh, there's somebody at the University of California, San Francisco, I want you to meet, and he's really on the ascendancy. And this was 1987. And uh, she said, I'm going to write a letter of introduction to you. And it was Dean Ornish. Oh, now, my God. But listen to this. This is the crazy part. I went back to my uh, air base in the Philippines, at Clark Air Base in the Air Force. And I had recommended a book to all the participants in the care program just to give them a reading background for the, for the premises of what we were trying to introduce to them, you know, to teach them how to relax and how yoga, because, you know, just yoga seems so undramatic and ineffective compared to these F-16 fighter jets that could drop bombs and get things you know, alter world history in an instant. And, you know, yoga is very slow and gentle and, and it just seemed not very effective. And uh, so I found this book and it was called Stress, Diet, and Your Heart. Mm. And I just skimmed it because I, but it had all the elements that I wanted as the core foundational book of this care program for those that needed extra reading. And I went back after Joan meeting Joan who do you think uh -huh. <laughs> Dr. Dean Ornish and I'm reading I'm looking through it and I went through the acknowledgement section now Dr. Ornish is known for very thorough acknowledgement sections they could be small books unto themselves of all the people that have cooperated with him and have inspired and worked with him so I'm going through all these lists this MD 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 medical doctor because that gives credibility you know when you have doctors endorsing your work and I finally get to the very last sentence of his acknowledgement section which they used to put at the front of the books now they put it on and there was this initials S and special thanks to S.S. S. Satchinananda 
Uh, I said, oh, very sneaky. And I had known Swami Satchinananda because he was a good friend of Dr. Pratap, and I'd met Swami Satchinananda many times over the years. But he, it was not very fashionable or favorable if you're in academic medicine to give credit for a scientific work to a swami, guru yeah. or a swami. That just would just destroy your credibility right there. So Dr. Ornish was very savvy, very, um, um, you know, he was on a mission. And uh, so, but he wrote this incredible book, and that was his first book. And I wrote to him from India, and he says, please come and visit me. And, um, and that was it. And before you know it, I was in 1988 in Washington, D.C., in the audience of the American Heart Association's 61st scientific sessions. And the top cardiologists, not just in America, but in the Western world, were there. And there was Dr. Ornish presenting his findings about how yoga um, and a vegetarian diet and his entire program I'm sure they attacked could, oh, attacked. People used to compliment Dr. Ornish and they'd say, well, you're such a pioneer for the work you're doing. And he said, well, I'm from Texas, and you can always tell who the pioneers are, because they're the ones with the arrows stuck in their backs. You know? <laughs> so I was in the audience, and the air was so thick, you know, what's that saying? You could cut it with a butter knife. Yeah. And uh, they were throwing not just arrows at him, but, you know, cruise, cruise, <laughs> cruise missiles. Wow. And he fielded these, you know, you could feel the hostility underneath these elaborate scientific questions that were just, you know, they were disguised, you know, the, the hostility was disguised under the guise of these are legitimate scientific questions. But you could tell, they, he was young, he was in his early 30s and he was an upstart, you know, challenging the traditional way of treating, you know, heart disease and heart attacks with bypass surgery and, and uh, rotor rooter you know, uh, angioplasty procedures, and so, uh, so Dr. Ornish not only scientifically proved yoga, but I, the, the benefits of how yoga in his program um, could, you know, he proved it physiologically, showing through PET scanning and quantitative angiography, which are very sophisticated diagnostic tests that even insurance companies still to this day won't pay for because they're too expensive. But to introduce a low-tech intervention like yoga, you needed some very dramatic scientific uh, proof that it works. So he did that, and I credit him for that. I mean, that was like amazingly innovative. Now, please tell us the journey that he had to go through to get it approved by oh, Medicare. Gosh, okay. Well, he... <laughs> so he did many, many... We. He started this research while he was a medical student and he took two years off of medical school to do two independent studies to present uh, a proposal to the National Institute of Health to fund a study. And he, his premise was that um, you, know, you can reverse heart disease once you remove the factors that are creating it. And, they, and the argument that the NIH said, no, 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 heart disease is a genetic disease. Um, you could become a vegetarian, meditating marathon runner, but if you have the bad genes, you know, it, you're still going to die of heart disease. Maybe you'll live a year longer. And Dr. Arnold said, no, if you go back to the birth 
the, the death certificates of the people that died in the turn of the 1900s, turn of the century, nobody died of heart disease. And Albert Schweitzer had said this even before. Wow. And, and, and he won the in Nobel Prize in 1953. Albert Schweitzer was the most famous physician in the world uh, from the last century. And he called these diseases that are afflicting us now, like high blood pressure, stroke, heart disease, cancer, and diabetes, these are diseases of modern civilization. And Dr. Ornish operated on that same premise that no, these are lifestyle diseases. People from that have different lifestyles don't have these diseases. And um, so it was a big argument and they NIH said, well, I'm sorry, even if you could prove that you could reverse heart disease, nobody's going to do them by these draconian methods such as yoga and vegetarian diet and you know and they said why don't you do something more conservative like ileal sequel bypass surgery it's known as the Whipple procedure and uh, if, if you ever want to get a rise out of Dr. Ornish just mention that you know because it may seem conservative scientifically but when you're the patient and you're getting your abdomen cut open and your intestines rearranged and it's not conservative it's highly invasive so he fundraised on his own. He cured some very significant people, celebrities, and one was a man named Lorenzo or De Lorenzo, who was the president of Continental Airlines, the CEO and Eastern. And he cured him of his heart disease and worked out a deal where he made an offer to Dr. Ornish that you can fly any of your patients and staff anywhere in the world for free. Wow. So that's how I met him. I came out to meet him in 1987 uh, when I came back from India and being overseas for many years. And he said, look, at if, uh, if you can manage to stay in San Francisco, this, he, his, uh, work, he was working out of a little office in his home, for two weeks I can spend probably two hours with you and we can talk. So he lied to me because after two weeks of staying there, and every day I'd go up to see him, he could barely squeeze in five minutes with me. So finally I came to him and, and he said, look it, I'm very, very sorry, but um, I'm flying tomorrow to the East Coast and you can, you can get on the airplane. I, I won't, you, you won't have to pay anything. I can get you on the airplane for free and we can talk on the airplane. Well, he was my agenda for coming back from India. I, there, I had no other agenda but to see Dr. Ornish. And so we got on the plane, and he was, uh, it, you know, we talked for six hours. It was a six-hour interview. Even after that, it took me another five years before he accepted me as one of his physicians to begin this work. How long did you do the actual work with him? Well, I worked for ten years. Ten years. With him. Now, can you just, from the time we have remaining, uh, uh, please uh, tell us a little bit about how he got it into Medicare. Medicare. Yes, so he did many, many studies, and you know, Medicare is very conservative. And Western medicine, you know, they have this phrase called standard of care, and it's very nebulous and elusive. And what it comes down to, and I heard it from an attorney who was lecturing to the Hawaii Medical Association one year on medical ethics and uh, uh, medical legal issues. What is standard of care? Standard of care is what's decided in every courtroom in every malpractice lawsuit case. 
and it can vary from judge to judge. So beyond that, it's what the insurance companies will pay for because they don't want to get sued and they don't want to be paying for a program that's going to cause undue risk to somebody. And they look to Medicare, which is a very conservative body. So Dr. Ornish presented a proposal to Medicare during the Clinton administration. And it was taken forever. And finally, and then apparently it died. It got rejected. And President Clinton asked Dr. Ornish, he says, well, Dean, how's your, um, how's the Medicare proposal going? And Dr. Ornish goes, well, it died. And, uh, and uh, it, it's not going anywhere. And President Clinton goes, don't you know anything about politics? And Dr. Ornish goes, actually, no, I'm a doctor. You know? <laughs> and, he's, and, doc and so President Clinton says, okay, well, let me make a couple phone calls for you. And he did. And he found out where it installed. And he said, okay, they want you to sign a waiver, a letter saying that stopping smoking is not harmful to your health. Oh, my God. And I think, I'm not sure, this is my own personal conjecture, but I think that's how deep the tobacco money, industry money was wow. in, into the Medicare, you know, uh, funding or the, oh. into the Medicare approval process. But it... After that, after he signed that waiver, it still took another 10 or 15 years. He had to say that he didn't think tobacco yeah. was harmful. He said, in his medical opinion, stopping smoking is not harmful to your health. That's what it came down to. But anyway, he, he was able to, it, it took about 18 years since he, his proposal for Medicare to approve. Now Medicare has approved it. So, um, so anyway, it... So now that Medicare pays for um, the Ornish program, that's now standard of care. So all of the other insurance companies are able to reimburse for that program. It's up to the hospitals now to, to refer patients and institute. And because most of the hospitals are financially strapped in America, while the insurance industry continues to gain more financially, but the insurance companies have a huge interest in the Ornish program because it ultimately saves them money. So instead of having a bypass operation, which is $100,000, or all these expensive cardiac procedures, doing the Ornish program will prevent all these things. So HMSA, which is the large insurance Blue Cross Blue Shield provider in Hawaii, their outgoing CEO, who's been with them for uh, 43 years, Mike Gold, was very much on board in, in, with the Ornish program. And then anybody that goes through it, just as a, as a staff that gets trained and they, and they, they see the depths of it, it's, it's incredible. But the, it, in spite of Dr. Ornish's incredible scientific expertise, and which I think he deserves a Nobel Prize for, really, um, what I love about him is he he's, has a, a more broader perspective on heart disease. And he... Uh, he says very clearly, he said, the physical heart is a metaphor for the spiritual heart. Wow. Yeah. He said all these blockages in people's arteries of their heart, they represent blockages of the flow of love. And he wrote a book called Love and Survival, which I loved, uh, because it shows all these studies where love heals people. And even they did one study where 
seniors who had heart attacks were divided into two groups and one group got dogs as pets. That group had twice the survival rate as the other group. Art, I, 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 this is going to be a I told you we could talk I, for weeks no, and weeks and weeks. No, this will be a high bar for all other interviews. I, I can't tell you how much I am grateful for you taking the time to do this and how many of our students and everybody else will really appreciate this interview. Art, thank you for sharing everything. I love you very much, brother. Love you too, Uncle Larry. Thanks. Thank you for having me.